too. It's a delight to be back with you. I was here two weeks ago and four, six weeks before that, and then four weeks from now, so pretty much sick of me. I'm sorry about that. I didn't plan well. What can I tell you? But it's great to be with you. My wife, Janet, and uh, who's that other person that comes along? Oh, Maggie. Uh, she says hello to you, uh, especially you, Nick, especially you. And uh, uh, it's, um, it's a delight. Yesterday, we, uh, we had a, a lady shower or a shower for one of the ladies at our house, and there was about 45 to 50 women there. I think that was a good weekend for me to be away. No, it was a delightful time, and it was a blessed time for my wife and the ladies of the chapel. Last time when I was here, we, we, I introduced to you just a, a miniature topic, really, on um, do not be afraid. Do you remember that? I, I told you about Gracie, who when the storm comes, she is so frightened, she'll cuddle up in your lap and like a little ball and and cover her eyes when the lightning flashes and the thunder roars, and she is afraid. Although that's a terrible moment for my daughter, it's delightful for me to be able to hold this little clump of humanity on my lap and whisper, don't be afraid, daddy's here. Don't be afraid. If you've not had the privilege to experience that, you will. And you'll find it to be the most delightful experiences of your parenthood. This week, um, we had, uh, I, I needed to stay home for my parents' sake, so I had a little more time at home. And um, I decided we'd, we'd watch a movie, a family movie night. You know, those can be dangerous. And, and so... Uh, we picked one that I thought was relatively safe, except it uh, frightened my little girl. And about uh, 2 a.m. that night, she's waking up having some kind of nightmare. Of course, I didn't tell Mrs. Wonderful that it was really my fault. I just held Gracie, held her on my lap, and I said, don't be afraid. Last time we talked about some scenarios in which fear is a natural byproduct of the circumstances. And uh, we talked about Abraham when the, when the future passes you by. Remember that? That came out of Genesis where the, um, uh, 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 the situation where Abraham could be made rich by the offer of the king of Sodom uh, could make him a very wealthy man. And he passed it by because of the promise of God. He was going according to the promise of God and not the promise of a man. He let Lot pick the best from the land. And it appeared that, again, his opportunity had passed him by. And the very first thing God says to him in Genesis chapter 15 is, Don't be afraid. I'm with you. We then turned our attention to this whole situation with Jacob. He is definitely my twin. <laughs> I remember, I resemble more of Jacob than I'd like to admit. And he had been running from his past, hasn't he? He ran, he, his mother sent him away for the shrewd and, and deceitful way that his twin brother Esau was treated. He then meets a man that is more of a swindler than himself. 
Eventually, he has to run for his life, and, and God intervenes and, and sends him on his way. And in the process, his past is running to meet him. His brother Esau, who he cheated, was now on the warpath with 400 men coming to meet him at the brook of Jabbok. And there Jacob was, alone with God. And the text even says that he was afraid. And when the past begins to hunt you down, you'll be afraid. But that's when the finest moments of God's retooling, of remodeling, of resurfacing your life will ever occur. You've wrestled all your life. You've had God in a chokehold. You think that God will finally do what you want to do. And God can just reach up and touch the side of your, your hip and you'll forever limp again. But you will be changed. What's necessary for that? Well, Jacob had to tell him his name. I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. Well, tell me your name. I'm a liar. That's what he said. I'm a swindler. I'm a cheat. And God doesn't flinch at that. God doesn't get upset with that. And that person in that wrestling match, God says, now you'll be called Prince of God. I'll change who you are. You don't think it can happen. It doesn't look like it can happen. But the moment you cross the threshold of brokenness and confession is the moment when God can act. And let me tell you something. That's true today, too. Our brother read from Isaiah 57 today. God loves to dwell with the contrite in heart and those who tremble at his word. Then we looked at Jehoshaphat, King Jehoshaphat. I always wanted to name one of my boys Jehoshaphat. What a nickname would he have had? It'd be hard to have a nickname for him. My wife, the sensible one in our family, vetoed me. And so, but King Jehoshaphat, he was, he was really quite a, a reasonably godly king. And all of a sudden, seemingly out of nowhere, the Moabites, people group across from the Dead Sea, the Ammonites, people group across from And so Jehoshaphat was afraid when problems arise. You ever been afraid when problems arise? Sometimes we ask the question, why? What did I do to deserve this? As if God is in the business of reciprocating tit for tat, my failure deserves God's judgment. You know, that actually, what, 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 what you're failing to understand in that sort of sort of theology is that God has absorbed the penalty for your crimes. And it's not like this Coke machine where I put in quarters of heaven and if I put in the wrong change, I won't get what I want. I'll get something else. God isn't wired like that. That's not the right theology of the Bible. The Bible says that the Lord is kind to those who are evil and unthankful. Luke. Chapter 11, I believe. God has a mechanism, a way of dealing with kindness with all those, whether they deserve it or they don't deserve it. And problems will arise. And it's not a matter of bad things happening to good people. It's a matter of taking when those bad things occur and we do like Jehoshaphat does and did and we go before the Lord and we present it to him. And the Lord said, listen, today you will watch me fight your fight. 
You go down to the ascent of Ziz, which, by the way, is by En Gedi, where we'll be, Lord willing, in February. And when that happens, I tell that to the guys that we study with so they'll want to go to Israel. See? And he was so confident in God, he sent the best of his fighting group in the front of the line. You know who they were? The singers. And as they sang... The army, the enemy army was ambushed. You know, when problems arise. Now, I want you to turn in your Bibles today to Luke chapter, Luke chapter 5. And there are four very simple points. Quite honestly, this is a, a very simple message. It's, it's, we're not going to delve greatly into textual issues. And we're not going to delve greatly into... Uh, uh, controversial matters of the text. We're, we're really just going to try to encourage and exhort today. Because I bet there's not a soul here that doesn't utter the phrase once in a while, I'm afraid. Now, this situation in, in Luke chapter 5 was, was equally um, startling. And I've titled this section, actually, I've got to look at my notes now. <laughs> I've titled this section, Afraid when you're patronizing. It's kind of an odd title, isn't it? Now, this was when the Lord Jesus was calling his disciples to follow him. It appears that within the last year, he had met his disciples somewhere uh, near Aeon, or where there was baptisms by John the baptizer going on. And when they met the Lord Jesus, they were quickly attracted to him because John the baptizer identified this unique rabbi, Jesus, as the Messiah. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We read that the verse this morning too. And what happened is, is that they, I think, believed that he was the Messiah, the chosen one, but they hadn't dedicated their lives to totally following him. And there was a subsequent, what Winnie would say, a subsequent call to service. That's a lot of our own Christian existence, isn't it? We, we recognize that, uh, that the Savior is who he is and we respond, but perhaps later on in life or not too long, we, we are called to serve him in a, in a more complete and fuller capacity. That's normal. And that's what was happening here. Now, the, the events that transact <coughs> excuse me, are really interesting. Let's read it together. Verse 1 of Luke chapter 5, So it was, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret, which is the Sea of Galilee. That's that heart-shaped sea in the northern part of Israel. And he saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen, the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, and guess whose boat it was? It was Simon Peter's. And he asked him to put, put out a little from the land, and he sat down, and he taught the multitudes. Now, I've been on the Sea of Galilee, and this particular area, usually called Tagba, is, a, is an area where, where uh, 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 it's just some springs feed in there, and there's a little bit of a warmth to the water. And uh, uh, you, you find that the fish will tend to come into that area, and that's where they do a lot of their net casting and dragging. Uh, and yet, for whatever reason, this was a very unproductive night. 
So as they were cleaning their fishing nets and Peter was sitting there and the Lord began to teach and I, I can envision it all because we stood right there on that seashore and I can see the boat go out maybe 20 or 30 feet and I can see the Lord expounding and teaching perhaps truths that you've heard from the, the, the uh, Sermon on the Mount. You know, you have heard it's been written in the law, you know, that, that kind of teaching. Very majestic, uh, perhaps authoritative, personal, down to earth. Our Lord was a master at communication, wasn't he? And after he teaches, who knows, maybe an hour, maybe two, on Peter's boat. That means that Peter was listening to the whole thing. Perhaps Andrew was there, his brother James and John, no less too, because they were part of the business, they were the business partners in their operation. The Lord Jesus says to Peter, Verse 4, when he had stopped uh, speaking, he said to Simon, launch out, launch out into the deep and, and cast and let your nets down. Now, many a Bible student will point out that it was plural, nets, right? That's a good observation, nets. But Simon answered and said, okay, now I'm going to dramatize it because I think it'll capture the, the moment. Master, we've toiled all night long and caught nothing. Stop. Who are the fishing experts here, Master? All right. Nevertheless, at your word, we'll let down the net. As if to say, I don't want you to be embarrassed in front of these people. Right? It's a little patronizing. You'll, I'll justify that statement in a second. We'll let down the nets, right? So you said nets, but hey, okay, listen, listen. You're kind of, you know, you are like the Messiah. We'll just let, we'll let one down. We'll show you. There's no fish here. That's what's implied, isn't it? He wasn't, wasn't planning to catch anything. He had been washing his nets all from the fishing all night. There's nothing to catch. We're tired. I don't want to do this. And you're telling me, to, oh, come on. I know what fishing's about. I grew up on this lake. Or could say, I made the lake. Okay. So what happens is they, they did that. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish there. And don't you love how the Spirit of God is? Their net was breaking Meaning that if you threw down the nets, you wouldn't have any trouble because there wouldn't be more nets for the fish. You dum-dum. That's not in the text. I threw that in. And so they signaled to their partners. Oh, who would that be? Well, it would be James and John, right? Sons of thunder. <laughs> Poor guys. All right. And the other boat to come and help. And they came and they filled both boats up. And they began to sink. Well, let me tell you. There is a boat that they actually rescued from the time of Christ when the, the water table of the Sea of Galilee went down one year so low, and they actually extracted this thing. It was, it's, it's all on the internet, and it's preserved today in this museum that's right off the uh, de, uh, Sea of Galilee. We like to go there. I like you to see it, and it's, and it's about as uh, long as from maybe the end of that pew to about where you're sitting, Lincoln, and, and you know, that's a, it's about 10 feet wide. You sink in that baby. That's a lot of fish. That's a lot of fish. I can hear them. Hurry up! Hurry up! We're going under! I don't know. Why well, I told you I should have put the nets. Can you hear all this stuff? It would have been crazy. 
Now, let's look in a serious way at verse 8. When Simon Peter saw it, what did he see? The nets a-breaking, the fish a-flopping, and the boats a-sinking. What did he do? Well, look at here. He fell down at, the knee, at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, I am a sinful man. Okay, I just, I th- I, if, I'm, if I'm Andrew, I'm saying, Hey, Peter, that's a little over the top. We're just fish here. What, what was being implied? I think this is the implication that he was patronizing the Lord. Okay, we'll do it. It's just, you know, just here, just throw one over, right? And when the exact opposite happened, he was totally floored, totally humbled, if not humiliated, and he said, ah, I was so rude to this man. And look what happened. I should have, I should, I, I wasn't engaging him. I was patronizing him. Let me tell you something, Christian, and those of you who may not know Christ. Many times we patronize God. Okay, if that's the way you want it, I suppose so. Did you ever do that? We're the almost missionary. You know who who's the almost missionary in the Bible? Jonah! He almost went in the right direction. He almost went for the right reasons. He almost said the right message. And he almost saw a city saved. Actually, he did see that. Almost. Everything about Jonah was in the opposite direction. Everything about Jonah was, was, was rebelled. Even at the end, when, when God had the gourd and the, and the thing and the worm came and ate up his shade tree and, and he's, about, he's dehydrated, his lips are parched and his tongue is stuck to the roof of his mouth and God comes to him and says, are you still right to be angry? He goes, I'm so right. Give it up, man. You're almost dead already. God's right here. But boy, we do that. We treat God with a, with a kind of a rudeness, don't we? A real patronizing way. If that's the way you're going to be, then I'm never going to give you anything. I have to confess to you. I did that. You see, I, I had goals. You weren't, most of you, some of you were not alive then, but my goals was to compete in the Olympics in L.A. in 1984. And uh, my goals were shattered. You know what I became? Mad at God. Have you ever been mad at God? It happens a lot, actually. I was mad at God. I, I knew it was wrong to be mad at God. I knew that I, I really shouldn't have this, this disposition, but I was upset with him. Now, it turns out lots of people are upset with him in the Bible. Jonah was one, but how about David? Did you know David was upset with God? You remember Uzzah and the ark? They're bringing the ark, uh, uh, trying to trans, uh, transport it from Bet Shemash or, or uh, from that region over to Jerusalem, and, and they put it on the cart, and Yuza reaches out to steady the ark when the oxen stumble, and Yuza, boom, he dies. And David, he was kind of upset. He, he read that text. He's, well, we got to stand down, guys. Let's not move it at all. I'm a little... Let me tell you, it is very possible that you could get your nose frosted by the things of the Lord and just sort of tolerate him. You know, a lot of Christians do that. They really do that. 
I should know. I did it. I was well into three and four children in my family before God ever showed me myself in the mirror of his word. I want to ask you something. When you do that, you become afraid. I said, I, was, I, I should say, let me tell you something. When you do that, you become afraid. Why? Because you know you've been rude to the man who's been right the whole time. Thus the Lord Jesus says, are you ready? Verse 10, do not be afraid. In other words, from now on, Mr. Simon, you won't catch fish. You'll catch men. You know what he's saying? You'll be my follower, and I'm after to rescue humanity from their sins, and you will do the same. In other words, the patronizing rudeness of the moment does not seem to bother the Lord Jesus. He reaches forward and grabs Peter like he's a fish. And he says, now you're mine. The kindness of God leads a man to repentance. And when we've been rude and inconsiderate of God, when we have done our own thing and gone our own way and held Him at arm's length as if you, sh you can only come up to this point and no further, God doesn't hold that against you. In fact, He longs for the moment when the heart will break and so He's going to shower you with kindnesses so that your heart will break. Do you need to have a contrite heart today? time. Don't be afraid. God's not like you. God will actually welcome you to his service. I'd like you to turn to another passage, which is in Matthew. And this passage is very, very familiar to you and I. It's in Matthew chapter 14. I selected Matthew's account of Jesus walking on the water because it's the one that, again, features uh, the events of Peter like no other gospel writer. And this particular point I've titled, Don't Be Afraid When You're in a Panic. Anybody been in a panic before? Surely not. Well, it turns out I'm in a panic a lot. That kind of goes against being an emergency physician, doesn't it? I'm supposed to be calm, smooth, no problem, speak calmly, move decisively. But it turns out I'm kind of a basket case outside of that little trauma room. I didn't know that. My wife told me. She's very helpful. Seriously, it was quite obvious. But let's read this account together, and then we'll talk about this whole, whole thing when you're in a panic. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. Now, the Bible students in our class yesterday should immediately pummel me with the question, what had they just been doing? Right, Ricky? Yes, good job, Ricky. Uh, that was totally unscripted right there. And what they had just been doing was actually feeding the 5,000. So this is a big event. They start out with two fishes and five loaves. And by the way, there were the small fishes and there were, there were barley loaves and that's like the cheapest kind of bread. And so, so he, he then takes what is the cheapest thing and the, most, and the fewest things and he feeds, some would say, perhaps uh, 25,000 because if there's 5,000 men, there's probably 5,000 women. If there's 5,000 men and 5,000 women, there's probably 20,000 kids. 
at least in our family. So, you know, it wasn't just a, a, a small event, it was a huge event, the size of, of many a football game, right? And, and so they're all, and they were, remember, they were hands-on. They were the ones responsible to set them in groups of 50 or so and to pass this out. I can just see this. Hey, you got any more? Wow, I didn't know. We, that, just keep it coming. Keep it coming. Can you imagine that? That would take an all-day deal, right? And then they gathered it up, right? And then what did they have? How many basketfuls? Twelve. Amazing. They were busy. Quite a spiritual moment, wasn't it? The creator God creating in front of you. Right? So he sends them, the Lord sends them in the boat to go to the other side of the Sea of Gennesaret, the Sea of Galilee. And here's what happens He stays behind and he sends the multitudes home, having a full belly, full spiritually, full physically, just like God does. That's how he is, right? And so he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. That's a common event. And it turns out when you say mountain, at that particular area of the Sea of Galilee, it, it actually is, is more of a hill to you and I, but it does kind of rise up sort of cliff-like. You, you, really, you really have to scale it. We actually scale down it when we go uh, down to the, from the top of that ridge down to the bottom by the seashore. Uh, but, but, you know, he just went up. And you can see for miles... But remember, there's a storm, so how could he see this boat? But anyway, let's go on. It says, he went up to pray. Now evening came, and he was alone, right? And the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, and the wind was contrary. So I was out there on the Sea of Galilee one year, and, and um, it was kind of overcast, and it seems like out of nowhere, usually through the um, uh, cliffs of Arkel, this, this wind comes rushing from the west to the east and just comes right on the top of the North Sea of the Galilee. And the next thing I know, our boat's kind of going, and, I, and we're, we're a bigger vessel. And uh, outside of me throwing up, it was fine. It was just fine. But I can see this smaller vessel tossed back and forth, kind of frightening. Now, remember, these guys were fishermen, right? What does that tell you? They knew every story of everybody that died, even the ghost stories, right? That's what that tells you. And so the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, just take that as the middle of the night, Jesus went down walking on the sea, all right? And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled. That's a polite way of saying they were mortified, right? They were very upset about this. And what did they say? It's a ghost. Think about it. You've been raised on that little body of water. Fishing is your life. You knew what boats went down. You knew who died. You knew if it was an uncle. There's a small community. If you're from Bethsaida, you're from Capernaum, you knew about these things. It gets around. And here you are on the boat, and you're, now you're thinking, it's our time. There's a ghost, Andrew. I'm telling you. Can you hear that? When you're in a panic... You're afraid. Now, I love this. I love this about the Lord Jesus. And immediately, Jesus spoke, right? How could he hear what they were saying? Well, how could he see in a distance what they were struggling on the sea? How could he do that, too? Well, I think that's a little element of his deity coming out. And he recognizes the fear of those children, those young men, and he addresses it. He's not trying to play this kind of cat and mouse game where now you see me, now you don't. Ha, 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 got you. No, he immediately addresses the situation. What does he say? Read it with me. Verse 27, 
Be of good cheer. What does that mean? You don't need to be afraid. You can be happy. It's me. It's me over here. I didn't do that, I'm sure. But, you know, it's, it's a, don't be afraid. Now, think about it. You're in the middle of the, you're, in the, you're on the, the, the Sea of Galilee. You got waves and swells, sometimes up to 10 foot. The boat's back and forth. The lightning and the, and, and, and the, the rain is beating you on the face back and forth. And you can't quite see the, 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 the waves are hitting you in the face. And you, it's a ghost. Ah, and he says, it's me. Don't panic. Don't be afraid. It's me. Now, love this part. You ready? Peter loved the guy. I think we were twins, too. Peter answered him and said, That's you. If that's you, then, 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 then command me to walk on the water like you. Come to you. You know, if I'm Peter's brother, I'm going, What are you nuts? I can see James and John. Jump in. Yeah, jump in. <laughs> and so here he goes. He gets into the water. Or excuse me, the Lord Jesus says, okay, come on. Can you hear that? Now, come, you know. <laughs> I'm thinking Peter's going, oh, I wish I oughtn't have said that. And so he gets in, and, and can you imagine the first step into that, you know, kind of. <laughs> and you step back, and you go, I would love to do that. People want to hang glide. I want to walk on water. It's the first thing we're going to do in heaven. See, isn't that amazing? And so what happens is, is he starts to, to walk to the Lord Jesus, and then, you know, the story, he, he's... He's got his eyes on the Savior and the wind <laughs> has a big gush and the waves and, and he, <sighs> and he begins to sink. And the story is very simple, right? The, the lesson is simple. You take your eyes off the Savior and in your panic, you look at what's making you panic. You always sink, always, because you're not supposed to fear what makes you panicky. You actually are supposed to draw near to the person, not to the panic, Right? This is what the Savior does, or this is what Peter does. He starts to sink, and he says, Lord, save me. Now, how far was he away from the Lord? We don't know. But he had to be close enough because it said this, and immediately Jesus reaches out his hand and grabs him. I would have been this. Hey, swim a few more seconds there. I think we got a couple of breaths left. You know? The Lord doesn't do that. He's just he, twice in the text, immediately. He's out there reaching, pulls them up. Now, they're not in the boat yet, are they? They got to get from wherever they're in the water to the boat. So how did they get there? Did Peter then walk on the water back? Or did the Lord carry him back? Or did he throw him on his shoulder? I don't know. But whatever it was, it was close enough. For the Lord to whisper in Peter's ear, and it be remembered the following phrase, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? In the midst of loud, boisterous winds. I'm going to tell you this. When you're in a panic, the only thing you hear is the winds that's blowing against you. But you want to hear the Savior's voice. Don't be afraid. I'm here. Did you notice how that theme is through every incident of fear? 
don't be afraid, Abraham. I'm your stay. I'm your, I, I'm your promise. Don't, don't be afraid, Jacob. I'm here. And Jacob even builds a little monument to remember the presence of God. Don't be afraid, Jehoshaphat. I'm here. Don't be afraid, fellas, about, about how you're... I'm here. And don't be afraid when you're in a panic. Can I ask you a question? Are you in a panic today? Because I want you to know the Savior will immediately... That's what it says. Read it. Immediately he reaches out. That's the kind of God you have. That's the kind of person he is. He's not some sort of guy that likes to tease you like you're a little cat uh, with, a, with catnip on the end of a string. He doesn't do things like that. He's methodical. He's poised. He's careful. He's calculating. And he always, always, always is for your good. The enemy wants you to believe that nothing he does is for your good. God would say everything he does is good even if it's a panic, or find yourself in a panic. So my friends, I want you to remember that. Now there's another one I want you to see. Matthew chapter 17. It's when we have the wrong perspective. I don't know if you've ever had this in your life, where you, you've traveled down the road of, of Christian living, and you suddenly realize, wow, I didn't know I was doing that. Has that ever happened to anybody besides me? Okay, just Dave and I. Yeah. <laughs> That's what happens. I didn't know that was, are you serious? I'm doing that. Usually it happens when you're talking to your wife. I don't, oh, surely I, I don't have a tip, do I? Well, these fellows are on the Mount of Transfiguration. There's a debate about which mountain that is. Some say it's Mount Tabor, right? Mount Tabor. We actually go to Mount Tabor. Guess what's on the mount, top of Mount Tabor? A church wasn't there at the time of Christ, it was a Roman garrison. Mount Hermon is a bigger mountain, and they were just at the base of Mount Hermon in the last seven days. It, it makes sense that it probably was Mount Hermon, less populated. And so as they go up, the promise was that they would see uh, the kingdom of God and its glory, and, and so here we are, we're at this event. And as they go up the mountain, it's Peter, James, and John. And as they get to the top of the mountain, as it were, they saw the Lord Jesus transfigured, verse 2, before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as the light. Do you ever try to go look at the sun when you're a kid? I'm going to see how I can look at the sun. Ah! My eyeball is melting. You know, that's, how, that's what we do, right? Well... So it's hard to see him. Now, Mark says he was whiter than any other launderer could make clothes white. I guess Mark did the laundry all the time. That's how he got that. Huh? And so what we have here is this, this total different. Now, it, it, the word transfigure has the idea of metamorphosize. What I really think happened here was that humanity was pulled back and his glory, deity, was shown like it was always been there. And his brilliance and his glory, gloriful presentation was before their eyes. And even though the light was so bright, meaning blinding and painful, you ever been in the snow where the light's reflecting kind of painful to your eyes? What happens is, is that they're able to see well enough to recognize, which is odd to me. How do they know what Moses and Elijah look like? How, did they, how, how come it couldn't have been Jeremiah? Huh? 
How'd they know that? I imagine their names must have been mentioned because it says Moses and, and Elijah appeared to, uh, to them talking with him. And Peter, now this is the part, I, I don't mean the target Peter, but he's always in the center, answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good, it is good that we are here today. Uh, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Eli Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, uh, behold, that, that word behold means boom, like that, uh, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this, oh, can you hear it? I just love this part. I'll try to be very majestic. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear ye him. Can you imagine that? Here in the middle, and we can make one for you and one for Elijah and one for, ah! Can you hear it? Why did I say that? Because when the Lord Jesus takes them through that, the first thing he says to them is what? Don't be afraid. It says that in verse 7. Hmm? He came and touched them and said, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You see, sometimes we say and have the wrong perspective. We mean well. We, we, we're trying with perhaps the right motives, but we're just off. And that creates a sense of fear. Oh, God, I messed up. I didn't know. I just, it just, I just did it backwards, and I can't fix it, and it's a mess. And, and you know what? God would come and touch your touch his head. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't you love it? Just how exquisitely tender God is to the specific types of fear of man. I love that. So Peter is so riveted by this event. Did you know he writes about it in the book of 2 Peter? He even says it. He says it this way. Listen, listen, guys. We are telling the truth. These are not some kind of cleverly devised fables we made up in the back upper room. No, let me tell you, we were eyewitnesses when that majestic cloud came over us that day. Remember that day? He's, he's telling now, if he wrote that in 65 AD. Here, he's, here, here this event happened in, what, 31 AD, so about 30 years early. That was for us three decades ago. We were there, the cloud came over, and we heard that majestic voice. This is my beloved son. And guess what? Those aren't fables. We were there. I'm not afraid anymore. you happen to have a wrong perspective oh maybe you're sincere maybe maybe you you've you've you just you didn't know that perhaps you've been offensive to God in some way he would say to you don't be afraid but I want you to look at this last one it's in Hebrews chapter 2 Hebrews chapter 2 it's what I call the fear of the present. So today we've talked about fear when you're patronizing, fear when there's panic, fear when there's a lost perspective, but there's a present fear. I want to read to you this passage. It's, it's a beautiful passage. It's in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 6. But one testifying in a certain place saying, what is man? So he's, he's now going to quote poetry. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you take care of him. 
You've made him a little lower than the angels. You've made mankind lower than the angels, and yet you've crowned mankind with glory and honor. You, you made him to be seated over your creation, to subdue it. That's what he said in Genesis. And set him over the works of your hands and put all things under subjection under his feet. And he, now he quits quoting the poetry and the author now speaks. He says, for in that he, was, he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. In other words, at the beginning, God created it so that man should subdue the earth and should have all this glory and dominion and everything as the caretaker of the created world. And yet we don't see that right now. Why don't we see that right now? And then he's going to switch. Notice this. But who do we see? We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. In other words, consistent with the original design for Adam. He adopted that same kind of uh, mystique, as it were. For the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, right? He, he became like man for the purpose of that suffering of death. And like man, he it was uh, still in that realm of, of being uh, crowned with the glory and honor of, of the privilege of that, of that created realm. Some would say it's post-resurrection. Uh, I, I, I would disagree. But the grace of God might be, but excuse me, with the glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for every man. See, this is what he's saying. The original man, Adam, had everything at his disposal, all of the, the title deed, as it were, to be caretaker and custodian of the planet. And when man and Adam in that moment had all the blank check of the universe, the blank check of the created world at his hands, he turned it over to Satan. Now we have the Lord Jesus, and he, in a similar way, came with this blank check of everything before him. And what did he do? He didn't sign it over to Satan, he signed it over to God and became Satan submissive to the things of God, even the death of the cross. For it was fitting for him for whom all things, for, from whom all things and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory. Why? How? By making the captain of their salvation perfect, that is, complete through suffering. That's what he did with his blank check. He didn't turn it over to Satan and therefore nothing subject, but he turned it over to God and became the ultimate obedient servant. Now listen to this. Verse 14, and as much, in as much then as the children have partaken of flesh and bone, just like you and I, we have flesh and bone, we can see it, we can measure it, we can smell it, he himself likewise shared in the same. He identified with the human, humankind that through death, like humankind would go through, he might destroy what? He might destroy him who had the power of death, the devil. And look, look at this verse, are you ready? And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. It was earlier in my career where I was training. I was a student. I can see his face today. He was shot close range with a shotgun in the chest. He was awake and talking. He had a huge, huge chest wound. I was in the trauma bay that day, and I reached over to pull the shotgun wadding out of his sternum. It came up off the bed. 
I'm standing like this. And he grabs my arms, blood everywhere. He pulls me to him and he says, Don't let me die! Don't let me die! And I saw the fear of death in a man. Every person in this room across, across the threshold of death. And if you don't know Christ, you have a fear of death, don't you? What my Savior did for you is that he did what you couldn't do, refused to do. He entered into the human race like you're in the human race, became just like you to identify with you so that he would put on the clothes of flesh and bone and instead of rebel against God, he would submit to God and the submission was just not in some sort of order of, of, of hierarchy. It was, it was not some political agenda. He, when he submitted to God, he put himself specifically at a point in time where God would judge him as if he was the criminal and you would go free. And when he so did that, he then took a death that was not his own. It was my death. God was so overwhelmingly pleased with such a feat. He raised him from the dead, thus showing that there is no longer, death no longer has the final say. And he can legitimately say that the shackles of death are broken. They're no longer the handcuffs and the chains of your soul. And when that man grabbed my arms and bloodied me with his own secretions and looked me, fear dripping, sweat all over his face, crying, begging me, don't let me die, I saw, I saw death and the fear it creates. Maybe that's you today. Maybe that is you. And you're afraid of death. I want you to know that there is someone who understood that and he purposely put himself in your place and he broke the shackles of death and he released you from the imprisonment held by the enemy, held by Satan. He was the warden and he broke it. Have you ever crossed that threshold in your life today? Held in bondage by the fear of death. Have you ever done that? Because there's not only will every soul need to cross the threshold of death, but every soul will have to face this question. And I'm here to tell you today that the Lord Jesus Christ satisfied that fear. And he would say to you, by trusting him as your savior, who put himself in harm's way for your sin, for your shortcomings, he would say, you don't need to be afraid. Let's pray. Our Father, this morning we have taken a few moments to, I don't know, unfold the word, but yet I, I fear that perhaps there is confusion. I just ask you that you would undo such confusion. I just ask you to take your word and let it speak for itself because it's really what you say. I, I haven't said it or, or wrote it. It was what you wrote. I just want to ask you to 
allow this, this, this one tremendous truth of the fear of death no longer plaguing a soul, no longer terrorizing a soul, is the ultimate when you say, don't be afraid. I pray, Father, bring this to our hearts afresh or bring it to our hearts the first time. In Jesus' name, amen.